We're in Beirut for a new episode of the Beirut Banyan, and we're joined by Abby Sewell. Abby is a journalist at Lorient Today. We discuss three of her recent pieces, covering collective memory in Hara Tahrik, renewable energy in the power sector, and the black market surrounding fuel shortages and smugglers in North Lebanon. Our conversation includes the wider role of journalism and storytelling, and an appreciation for long-form analysis and the written word. This podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners and viewers like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box. Any amount is appreciated. And follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The handle, The Beirut Banyan. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And to stay updated with video releases, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and thanks for watching. I'm Rani Shatah. This is the Beirut Banyan. Beirut is very small. And the reason I'm starting it this way is because I know your name from journalism. I've read many of your articles. Um... I've wanted to speak to you on the podcast, and then I don't really have to make much of an effort. I walk outside my apartment, I take a walk on the street, and I run into you. <laughs> and it makes it all the easier. I ask you up front, do you want to join? <laughs> it works out that way. And I think it's, it's quite lovely that we took, I think, maybe a 20 or 30 minute walk with a common friend, and we were talking about the beauty and the pain of the city in a very thin way, but it was, an, it was a relaxed and enjoyable conversation. It's the kind of conversation I like to have on the podcast. So in a way, it was kind of doing the podcast outdoors through Jamezi and Madam Khair. Another reason that the city is very small is because I did not realize that several years ago, this may be, this may be four years ago, uh, it didn't, I didn't connect the dots right away, but I listened to you say your story. Really? In, in Dar Bistro. Oh, no way. You were there. I was there. And this <laughs> is common. I mean, Dana Balut is an old friend. And uh, I, I think it was with um, Rima Abu Sha'ra as well. So okay. there was the storytelling nights. Yeah. At, yeah. Sorry, sorry, it disconnected. Say that again. I miss them. There's no more dar. There's no more storytelling nights. Exactly. And my memory is a bit vague, but I do recall you saying that you were, you had just arrived or you were leaving and returning and trying to figure things out in Beirut as a journalist. Also telling your own sort of tale, if you will, of how you ended up in a, it was a remote village teaching English, yeah, and the, the story stuck. And I think so much has changed since then, uh, most of it for the worse. Some positive things have happened, but uh, I think the bigger story is one of, one of collapse. When I read your articles, I think you're in a way documenting the collapse article by article. And each story, there is some positivity 
but the overriding story is one of fatigue and, and despair. So I think it's quite nice to hear your story years ago, catch you on the street, and now in a way reflect on where things are. And uh, I think if anyone's watching, rather than listening to this episode, if I'm sweating, it's because it's so damn hot. And both of us before recording admitted that AC turns on, lights go out. So there's no way around it. Gonna be drenched this episode. <laughs> That's Beirut. That's Beirut, exactly. Before we dive into, into really the recent months, and in a way, the elevated pitch when it comes to how bad things are. I'm curious about your own backstory. I know, I know a bit from what you shared four years ago. I remembered you leaving the Los Angeles Times and coming to Beirut and sort of ending up in an NGO teaching English, but that was not really your calling at the end of the day, that journalism is where you are. It's your passion. And I'm curious if you can tell me as much as you'd like about what exactly took you away from Los Angeles to this city and why you're still here and whether or not it's really the story that storytelling is really what's at stake here and that there's perhaps no better story than this city or no better story to cover so as much as you, as much as you can say about your own sort of personal narrative when it comes to this place well i don't really know how far back to go because it's kind of a long convoluted story as to how how i arrived at the point where i decided i wanted to come to beirut but when I got to that point where I decided I wanted to be in Beirut, I wanted to be working here in the region. I was, um, yeah, I was working for the Los Angeles Times in Los Angeles covering county government, which is just as exciting as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I didn't, I enjoyed certain things about it, but I got to a point where really I, I wanted to be here. I, I didn't want to be in the US, I wanted to be over here. And basically at that point, my job at the time wasn't going to send me. I mean, they were cutting back budgets. The company was going through bankruptcy. They already had a stringer here, so fair enough. And then I started looking for other positions and nothing was really panning out because it turns out that reasonably enough for somebody to hire you for a job in a place, you have to have experience working there. Yeah. So eventually I came to the point where I decided, okay, if this is really what I want to do, I, I just have to do it. Like I, I just have to save my money and just take the leap and go because then once I've gone, then I will be there. So then I will have experience working there. And that's what I did. So, so it's really, I mean, it's, it's, in, it's within the same profession, but you want it to be here rather than covering something that's not necessarily as as emotional when it comes to Los Angeles County affairs. Because I'm curious what would take somebody to this part of the world right now and what would keep you here? And I say this because I, I assume, and you correct me if I'm wrong, I assume that if you're in the storytelling business, this is the place to be. And that this can include journalism or, or any type of perhaps even art reflection on what's happening, that this is still where you want to be covering this story. And whether or not that resonates with you, just in terms of the, in a way, what keeps you here right now, having every reason to, in a way, run away. I mean, well, at the time when I came, the, the big story in the region and maybe in the world was, was Syria. Yes. And so like a lot of journalists, I picked Beirut because it's the closest place to be based to Syria that's safe and- Right, right, yeah. Live. 
Ironically, I never, never actually managed to get into Syria. So I've been here this whole time, so close to, to that story and covering aspects of it here in Lebanon. But, um, but unlike many of the other journalists here, I never actually got to go, which was basically, it was a function par partially financially, if you want to go in through like the Kurdish area, like a lot of people did, you're paying like $500 a day for a fixer. And right. I was a answer at the time and that was not, I mean, I will take risks, but I'm not going to pay money out of pocket to to put myself in danger of dying. Right. <laughs> sure, of course. <laughs> That's well said. But no, but I and like then, that. No, sorry, go ahead, another, please. I, I actually, I did apply for a visa to go to, to Damascus, which was denied. I see. So, so basically, um, yeah, so it never happened. And then over, over the course of that time, I was in Lebanon, and Lebanon became the story for me. So in a way, it's kind of, a, it's really by chance that you're here when things begin to take off once again. And that in a way, it, it, it perhaps forces you to stay in that sense. Why, why would you leave when everything is being, when all coverage is focused on this country and on Beirut? So any, I admire anyone who's willing to call this city home, especially during this period whether they're from here or not from here. It's, uh, I think that's the kind of, these are little snippets of inspiration I think people uh, appreciate because it's, it's a very hard time to even cover the story. The story is taxing. You've produced many articles in recent months. Um, I, I read them and I read them as quickly as I can. Sometimes they come out very quickly, sometimes back to back. So I, I appreciate your words and I'm going to cover just a few of them because I can sort of, like your own story can, get, can go way back. I think there's too many articles maybe to cover in one episode. But there's one in particular about how to Tehrik, and it was released back in March. And the reason it, I found it quite, uh, quite emotional is because I remember myself visiting Dahiyah when I was younger, but not really appreciating how things have changed so much in terms of the, in terms of the attitude towards Dahir, until I went back, and you mentioned, you even mentioned this in the piece that it's it's almost ironic that the attention comes back during a funeral for Lukman Slim and the memorial service. I was there. Uh, many common friends were there, and I realized that I had not been to Khbeiri or Hara for for many 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 years, and I've grown a friendship with Monica Bergman and, uh, and Lukman Slim's sister, Russia. But your article really captures, I think, the local perceptions of Dahi and Haratrik, and that things have changed so much in recent years. But I like that you take us back a bit further, pre-war, and where what the, I mean, little simple stories about a church that was demolished and a bigger church put in its place I like the storytelling craft when it comes to that, that article. So we can start there. And I'll, I'll title it, More Than Hezbollah's Stronghold, The Complicated Past and Present of Hara Tehrik was released on the 6th of March. And you also talk about urban planning with a friend of mine, Muna Fawez. Yeah. About, and I love that you're even talking about how far you can build and the post-war crunch period to keep these, civil, these violation buildings intact. It wasn't a superficial piece. It was a very deep piece. 
into the story and the collective memory of that neighborhood. Did you have any relationship to that neighborhood beforehand? Or is this something that just came with the aftermath of Lukman Slim's assassination and you wanted to cover that neighborhood? I mean, I had uh, I had visited the neighborhood before. I didn't have like any kind of deep association, but I mean, I had been to to Haritrik and other areas of Dahi, like to visit friends' families and, and um, to, to go to the camera shop that's there, and not in Haritrik, but you know the one, the DSLR zone. Mm-hmm. So I mean, so I had been to the neighborhood. I didn't have this perception that some people have that it's just like no go zone, and this is. And this is part of, I guess, what I was trying to push back against with this article, because, because I felt like um, this this tagline that always gets put on Haritrik, the Hezbollah stronghold, yes. kind of, um, it really erases the, the whole community that's there. Whether, I mean, whether they're with Hezbollah or against Hezbollah, there are, there are all these people who have lived their whole lives there and they're living their lives that have nothing to do with Hezbollah. And also probably nothing to do with Lokman Slim, mm-hmm. but, but I felt like during, during that period of time, it was like the only, the only thing you would hear about Harit Reik was Hezbollah and Lokman Slim. So I just wanted to approach it in a way that would try to actually bring out what what is this community and who are the people who live there. You know, the rapid urban development reminded me of stories that I've heard about Tripoli, especially the orange fields, these orange blossoms and the, the smell, the scent of orange and the sort of, in a way, it's not an, it's not a, it's not an urban area. It's actually quite sort of almost detached from Beirut. And I, I like that you were able to sort of and we navigate many, many things leading up to Lukman Slim in a fairly short piece. And it's not just Munaf Awez. Uh, you reach out to, in a way, curious characters that I wouldn't associate necessarily with that part, with uh, the Ramadan canon. Oh, sorry? Uh, I don't know if you just heard that 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 loud noise. Oh, there it gets delayed, yeah. <laughs> I have the Aden going off as well. <laughs> no, but you also approach it with with in a way, people that left in different periods, some left because of the July War, some left during the Civil War, few return, but there's a shift in Harat Hrek that feels permanent. Even though there's always that glimmer that things will, that the community that left would want once again return. And this is focusing primarily on the Christians of Harat Hrek. And you mentioned that they were the majority at, not that long ago, before the Civil War. But I like that you're able to, in a way, offer a, a friendlier take on that neighborhood and that you're able to challenge it in a way. And I like what you said earlier, that it's not just about Hezbollah or Lukman Slim. These are Lebanese that live there. Many of them have stayed and they're not really taking part in that kind of struggle. And, and I almost think that it's the kind of story that you would want somebody who's not from or not deeply invested in the country to, to, to share. Because you're approaching it in a way as a detached person, almost a neutral observer. But I'm curious, and this I apologize for this sounding a bit sort of brash and, and perhaps naive as well. The openness with people when it comes to willing to share their story in that neighborhood, and then somebody like you who's sort of asking them to reflect, was there any hesitation? Just in terms of you being identified as perhaps somebody who's not welcome 
or, or did you not have that experience at all? And I'm, I'm keeping it very superficial here. You're an American, you're coming to Dahi, and you want to talk about Dahi. I, I can only imagine that there's going to be some, maybe some reluctance at first, but I'm not sure if even that's the case and whether I'm right or wrong here, but that it's maybe harder to tell the story, but that you're able to do it regardless. And I'm curious how you were able to, in a way, engage your, uh, the people you spoke with. Well, actually, I have to give a shout out to Mona Fawaz because oh. she, she was the one who <laughs> put me in touch with this, uh, this old guy, the municipal engineer, because she had interviewed him many, many years ago when, when she was doing the, like the post-2006 reconstruction research. Yes, yeah. And so I called him up and he still had the same number and he remembered Mona and he said, okay, come down to the, come down to the <laughs> tomorrow if you want. So, so I came down and I think I had pretty much the same experience with everyone I entered, almost everyone I interviewed for this story that in the beginning they said, okay, but I don't want to talk about politics. Right. Yeah. Or if you talk about history, I'll talk about history. I don't want to talk about politics. That makes sense. So, yeah, but in a way that that serves the story well, that it's not really political. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was trying to tell a story that was about history and about the, about the character of the neighborhood. And of course, politics is a part of that, but it wasn't the main focus. Right, 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 right. Well, I, as somebody who's associating Lorient today and all these sort of outlets, pure politics only, it was, it was nice to read something that was less political for once. And really just, it's, it's actually collective memory. And I think it, it, it adds to what a group like Umam is trying to do, sort of just capturing the neighborhood as it changes. I'm, I'm sorry to, to keep emphasizing this point, but I really enjoyed that piece. And it's not the only one that I enjoyed because there's, <laughs> there's other ones that you're able to really, uh, it's almost honing in on everything that went wrong. And recent memory, and the, and the other piece that I read about was uh, was energy related. It was Electricité du Liban's existential struggle, and it was and I think we're all going through this right now. Hence, we don't even we're not even able to turn on AC units without uh, losing all our electricity. So the second article, uh, second article I'd like to touch on is EDL's struggle to stave off darkness exposes a huge missed opportunity in the renewable energy sector. It's mostly on solar energy. My whole life, I've been living through this issue. It's not something new. And there's been endless promises of 24-hour electricity since I was a kid growing up in the post-war years. And at times it got a little better, but it, never got, it was never great. We got used to the 21-hour 20, circuit for several years, but that wasn't the norm. That was almost like things are doing well. <laughs> that we're only getting three hour cutouts a day. But the issue of solar energy, I didn't know that this was a real missed opportunity. I didn't know that things were actually beginning to move in the right direction, but then it all stopped. And I'm wondering just from your side and your reporting, did you sense that there was that, that actual momentum prior to the uprising, that things were actually going to head in that direction, that this was a serious consideration and all the details that, that go into it? Or was this really just an issue of corruption once more? Because I'm curious, it's, it's hard to imagine that things were actually beginning to move in that direction prior to October 17. 
And I didn't know that prior to reading this article that there was seriousness on the, on the debate, on the issue. But just from your own, own reporting is that sort of a naive way of looking at it, that it's really just about corruption. And that even though things were being said and perhaps things were finally beginning to move, they were not necessarily going to go in that direction. I think things were beginning to move. Um, if only because that's the way that the whole energy industry has been moving. And mm. as I actually mentioned in the article, there's a lot of there's a lot of money in renewables now. So if you want to get international financing, stuff like this, it's actually smart to invest in renewables. Right. And it would have been smart to invest in renewables, say, three years ago before the Lira collapsed, but that didn't happen, at least not on a major scale. Right. So, so it's a missed opportunity. It is a real missed opportunity in that sense. I, I read in the piece that there's that 2030 deadline that seems unlikely now that, I mean, yeah. So just from your own eyes, I'm asking big, quest, big questions, but I know that uh, you don't have the answers, but um, just in terms of perspective, uh, is it a fait accompli at this point that this, whether it's renewable energy, solar energy, that these things will not improve in the, in the immediate future? because of everything else that's happening and state paralysis and the like, that this is a, in a way, become a non-issue as opposed to something that should be on, on, on the table. I think there are small projects that can move forward, definitely individual initiatives, people putting solar panels on their, their own houses or businesses, which, which is already starting to happen, but how many people actually have access to dollars to be able to, to pay right. for solar panels, which are completely imported. It's not like, it's not like any of this stuff is manufactured in Lebanon. So that's also kind of the irony of it is that now as the electricity situation is getting worse and worse, there are more people that would be interested probably, but right. it's just out of reach for the vast majority of people. Right. So I didn't know the technology is developed outside as well. So you have to import that technology too, and that adds to the burden. Yeah, exactly. So in other words, electricity issue, I think, is going to remain with us. It seems like it's a, it's a long-term problem. I remember when I first came to Lebanon, I was joking, and I said, why don't they just replace the generator mafia with the solar panel mafia? And actually, since then, there have been like World Bank reports that were written that basically proposed doing exactly that. Like, You're right. But I... I, I the, the the village itself escapes me now, but there's there's a reference to a village that that has solar has infrastructure available, but they're using it as a backup to the generator industry, which I found to be very surprising that this should that if anything would replace it, but it's being used as reserve. <laughs> yeah, that was a bureaucratic issue. Yeah, so mm. this was. Abricha, it's a village in the south, and they had gotten some funding through the EU, I think, to do this municipal solar farm. So the idea was that they would be able to hook into the EDL grid and basically like sell energy back to the grid. Mm. But it just never, they never actually got the, the go ahead to do that. So basically, they're only able to use the solar panels when the EDL electricity is off. Right. Yeah. Which makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> I guess they, they said it does help because it reduces the, the diesel expenses for the generators. But I mean, yeah, you, you could have these solar panels generating power the other, I don't know, 12 hours a day or more when EDL power is 
is on. Well, right. now it's probably less, but. But even the creative ways of being able to, if you produce excess electricity and you have a solar panel that you would get discounts on your electricity bill, which sounds, which sounds like it's, it's set. I mean, you can, there are ways to do this. And at the same time, I mean, I, I remember British Hamoud on, on the river, Cornish, Nahar uh, Beirut, they sort of lined it up with solar panels several years ago. I have no idea if those solar panels are producing anything or if they've ever been switched on. But it seems like infrastructure that just didn't really do much. And that, yeah, we're now living with these irregular power cuts. So it's almost, uh, I don't know, there's that, there's that pessimism that, that seeps through. And you have all these people still trying in the story as well. Uh, Mark Ayub and Isam Ferris Institute is even talking about things as well when it comes to renewable energy and, but there isn't much that you can do on that front. Jumping from electricity to vigilantes and thievery and gas prices. <laughs> every time I go to the North, I see them. And it's next to every single item you can purchase. You can now purchase diesel as well. You can purchase gas. And that reminds me actually of the war years, civil war years and, and heading north that you would actually need to do this. You'd have to purchase this. You'd, you'd have to resort to these sort of methods of filling up your tank. Yeah, and I, I was curious, I mean, there was that almost a reluctance to really get into the, that there's a lot of theft going on and the smuggling and that this is almost becoming, the, the black market is becoming the norm. And did you sense in, in, in your conversations that you can't really control this issue, that there's going to be a permanent black market when it comes to, in a way, selling things that shouldn't be sold on the sides of highways? And, and whether or not this is, in a way, replacing permanently, if I'm not mistaken, 60% of the gas stations are shut down in the north or haven't been functioning in the last few weeks. I hope that's, I got that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure the exact percentage, but definitely a, a large percentage of them are not functioning. Right. But I mean, is this something you could even rein in if things were to stabilize? Or is this in a way just a permanent feature now that we're back into that, not necessarily warlike scenario, but it's almost anarchic to a point that you can be purchasing gas now and it's it's almost normalized. The, these, the people that I spoke to were not that forthcoming about who was providing them with the the gas and the the benzene the gas and the diesel except right. for the one guy who was haram was driving his van down to beirut and going around and filling it up and then siphoning out the gas but there were other ones that definitely had you could say an industrial supplier that was giving them large quantities mm. so if you think logically about who that might be i mean some of the people I spoke to speculated that there are gas station owners that have discovered it's more profitable if they close the gas station right. and have these guys sell it on the street for a higher markup. Mm. So this is in a way it's, it's, it, that the gas station could actually still function, but it would it's making more money through the black market. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, and the, the there isn't much discussion when it comes to the smuggling into Syria, but is that also part of it? 
at least in terms of these operations, that they're making more money that way rather than just doing it the, the standard way. There's more money to be made selling to Syria. Um, I'm sure. I mean, if there's a, if smuggling is happening, it's obviously because someone's making more money by selling it in Syria than they would by selling it in Lebanon. Right. I haven't personally looked into the economics of exactly how much they're selling it for in Syria, but if there's a market, you can pretty much assume that the, the there's profit being made. Right. And there's, I mean, th there's a quote in the piece, it's towards the end. Um, it, there's a young man who's selling, I think it's, it's 500, he's stored 500 jugs in his basement. So he has fuel at home. And there's a great quote. He says, we're going to hell, but we've only gotten halfway there. <laughs> it's, it's like a great way of describing where we are. We're on our way to hell, but we're just, <laughs> we're on the way. <laughs> we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, it feels like that, honestly. <laughs> yeah, but if you don't mind, let, let me, let's work with that quote. As a reporter, how do you relate to the story right now? Because you're, you're seeing a country that, has, that was already falling apart, but you're living here as it really collapses. So it wasn't shining when you first arrived. But we're now, I think it's taken for granted now. People say it, this is a failed state, that we've collapsed. But do you see it that way? You're on the ground and you're speaking all the time with a variety of, of voices. Do you see it that this is, in fact, a, a collapsed economy in a failed state? Or is this perhaps just an exaggeration, the way we describe it? Because I'm, I'm curious, it comes across that there's a, there's a finale here, that the country has shattered, the state has crumbled. But I, I don't know whether or not that's just over, in a way, oversimplifying it. And, and if you're able to offer maybe some nuance there. I mean, I think in terms of the economy, there's not really any question. Obviously, yeah. like, the economy is completely collapsed. In terms of the state, I mean, I remember even three years ago, maybe having a conversation with somebody about whether Lebanon was a failed state at that point. And that was before things had really gone off the rails. Right. I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends what's, what's your definition of failed state. But it does seem like in, it, this is a state that's not either not willing or not able to secure any of the basic necessities for its people, which I guess like by most definitions you would, you would assume that's a failed state or, or it's a libertarian utopia. <laughs> Maybe they're the same. <laughs> so, so it, I mean, it fits into the definition in that sense, of a failed state, but it's not, it's perhaps like the quote, it hasn't failed completely, but we're on the road to failure. Because I, I get that from, from several pieces, and it's not just your pieces, of course, but that, that things are like gradually eroding and it's nothing is being done to actually stop that from happening in, in, in every field possible. And what's very, very, unique, I think, about this type of reporting, at least when it comes to me, my, my engagement with, with all that is happening, I appreciate the long form. I appreciate these long articles. This is not Instagram friendly, sort of uh, catchy <laughs> in a way. This is not clickbait. You have to read these articles and, and think through. And I'm glad that this is in a way still available because so much information that I get, and I'm sure it's the same with you, 
is in a way it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration, and it's in a way just tweet or Instagram story or WhatsApp group stuff doesn't really doesn't really say what's happening. And I'm glad there's the audience that's still willing to read. You can get superficial analysis, you can get deep analysis. But I'm curious, since you're somebody who doesn't, in the more mainstream, more traditional sort of sense of reporting, is this the most effective way for you in terms of delivering the story and, and reflecting on what's happening? Um, well, for me, it is because I'm old school. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm not going to go back and learn how to do infographics now at this point in my career, which is not to say that that is not, I mean, that is a useful thing to do. And people get a lot of uh, good information out there through different kinds of formats. But I mean, I've, I've been a print reporter for more than a decade now. So it's, this is what I do. Mm. Um, I mean, for sure, like Lorient today, the, the audience is smaller than it would be with like a in major international publication. But I do see the, I see the article statistics and I see that when we do these kind of deep dive long form stories, they, they actually do well. So, so, so the, the audience yeah. is there that they are they are in a way able to digest still what's 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 not short attention span uh sort of clickbaity stuff that, that there is an audience willing to to read through yeah i mean for sure it's not it's not everyone but uh, but i think there are enough people that specifically want that that it's worth doing it right i mean i remember your name also in different outlets so it's not lo too long ago that there was a massive migration from the Daily Star to Lorient today. And I, and you're one of those names that sort of was brought over, but I, I, I can't think of another outlet right now that is able to do this effectively. And I, I struggle at times to find my own sources and sort of read through and, and make sure the facts are correct. I'm increasingly going to Lorient today. Oh, good. I used to go to the Daily Star, but everyone I used to read in the Daily Star is not loading on today. So I just sort of shifted my own websites and, and, and tabs. So I'm glad, I'm glad you guys are doing this work. And just, and just to wrap it up, Abby, uh, you, you, you arrived to a country <laughs> that in a, way you're, you're in a way pursuing your own story here. You're finding yourself in Lebanon. This is not your home. Uh, are you budging anytime soon? Or is this now really a, a permanent place for you? As the story sort of develops, as things begin to change. And I didn't get into this article, but we can wrap it up about the German project that's going to perhaps one day rebuild the port. This is almost like a Solidaire part two that may or may not take hold. Are you sticking around to see these things through? In your own career or are you in a way sort of moving on to the next story once Lebanon becomes a, a backstory if you will? It's always it's hard to think about this because for me yeah this story is here now and this is kind of the place I call home at this point but on the other hand I'm I mean I am fortunate enough to have a passport that would allow me to go somewhere else if if I chose to so yeah, I mean, I, I always have to think about what are my options, but for the time being, this is it. I mean, I don't think, I didn't come here to, to have like a happy fun vacation. So <laughs> <laughs> if I was gonna turn around and leave because this situation got bad, I, I wouldn't be a very good journalist, I don't think. 
So I like the. <laughs> so this is not a vac. Of course, yeah, it's not a vacation. Although, although, in a way, is that part of it that you'd like to see this country sort of go in a way into the back, take a back step if things were to improve? Because I'm assuming, I'm assuming once you've seen so much damage in one place that there is that yearning as well to report on something that actually stabilizes and is improved once more. And I, I assume not every story has to be negative and sort of draining on the soul, that you can also have an uplifting story as well. I, I would love to see that. I don't know if it's going to happen. Um, yeah. I mean, it will happen for sure, but I don't know when it's going to happen. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm invested in this place at this point as well. So it's not easy to, to report these stories and see how much misery there is. Well, I lived through Solidaire and seeing that piece about Solidaire part two, or not, not to make too much fun of it, but that kind of uh, momentum again, once more, I think it's a cycle that you can't break in this country. And in 2021, we're talking about something that should have ended long ago. We're talking about it once again. And I don't know, I'm, I'm, I, I look forward to reading your pieces down the road. The, the positive ones, I hope, reemerge once again, <laughs> maybe in years to come. And I apologize for sweating so much today. <laughs> but, your fault, bring the electricity. Yeah, I need to get my AC up and running in this apartment. Thank you, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening and watching, and a friendly reminder to support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.